the Museum of South Texas History preserves and presents the borderline heritage of South Texas and Northeastern Mexico by telling the stories from the Rio Grande. Hello, I'm Pamela Morales, the Communications Officer for the Museum of South Texas History. Thanks so much for listening to Stories from the Rio Grande. In this episode of Season 3, which I have called the Golden Memories Season, we are going to hear from Lisa Adam, the former curator of collections at Most History. She shares how the museum really challenged her creativity and museum skills because in the museum world, sometimes you have to wear multiple hats. So she's going to definitely share how wearing multiple hats really challenged her, but it was a, a fun challenge. And she also provides insight about collecting artifacts and gathering stories from the community because the Museum of South Texas History would not exist without the community. So I hope you enjoy this episode. My name is Pamela Morales. I'm the communications officer for the Museum of South Texas History, and I'm here with a very special guest, and I will let herself introduce herself. I'm Lisa Adam, and I work for over 15 years at the Museum of South Texas History with various titles. I was registrar, collections manager, curator of collections. Basically, I worked with the museum collections and, of course, with the donors and then at all the many special events and outreaches and things that the museum did. I, we all participated in that, and it was a fantastic experience. What year did you start working at the museum? I started in 2003 at a very exciting time and a very critical time because I came in in the months right before the museum was about to open the new facility then. The new building had been built in 2002, I think. And I came in just a few months before we opened all the exhibits in Rio Grande Legacy upstairs. And I got to be part of that. Of course, a huge amount of work had been done already by museum staff and the exhibit design firm out of Canada, Andre Associates. But I got in on the tail end and had some really exciting and fun times helping install the exhibit. So you said you started working there during that time? In August, yeah, 2003. Mm -hmm. What was your exact job title and duties? I think it's hard to remember now, but I think my first job title was registrar. So the registrar kind of in some ways parallel to a registrar at the university who keeps track of the records and admissions of people. The registrar at the museum is the person who's keeping track of the records of the collections of the museum, whether they're archival or ob objects or, or what have you. But particularly at that time, and, and a lot of times in the history of the museum, it was all hands on deck. Everybody do whatever needed to be done. If you had a particular skill set that you could do something, then that's what you could do. 
And so when I came on board, we were just a couple of months shy of opening. And at that point, even although it seemed like it was a firm opening date and we did complete it, it still seemed daunting. And there were questions of whether we were going to be able to open on time. And so it was definitely all hands on deck. I worked a lot those first months with the exhibit design team who were coming down from Canada and who just have done a phenomenal job. And I worked a lot with the mount maker. And that's a job that probably most people in the public don't even realize needs to be done or exists. But if you look at objects in a museum, whether they're a painting or a piece of pottery or clothing, there's got to be some way to display them on a stand, on a pedestal, on a mannequin, and oftentimes on something that's custom built for that object using specialized material. And so in this team that came down to get us this new exhibit or put work on this new exhibit with our staff, there was someone that that's all he did was make mounts for museums around the world. And just kind of by accident, because I was new on board, and so they're like, okay, you do this. I got to work with the mount maker. And it it was logical, too, because he needed to have the objects brought out from storage in a systematic fashion so that he could make the mounts and they could all be ready to be installed in the, the last push to get everything on display. That was kind of comical in a way because the mount maker had brought a lot of his tools from Canada, but of course couldn't bring all of his supplies. So he needed to go around the valley to get very specialized supplies sometimes. Like, And he would have me call some of these places and, and scope out where he could get them. Well, I was new to the valley. I'm from South Texas, but I didn't know my way around the valley at all. So I was calling all of these different companies and then we would, be driving in a hurry to get some kind of material that he needed, you know, that day or the next day. And he would just pile in my car and I would hand him the map (laughs) and say, we're going to such and such a place. Obviously this was before everybody had GPS on their phone and we were just driving all over to get these supplies. And it was a very pressurized time. You might say, because we were on a tight deadline and all of this had to happen. All these objects had to have their mounts custom made and he actually allowed me to make some of them because he found out that I could sew. I made some of the mounts that involve sewing. For instance, making a mannequin body and padding it out a certain way and covering it with fabric and sewing it to display a garment or making a silk covered mount to display a flag or something like that. But it was every day and it was long days and it was be working a lot of times late into the night to meet that deadline but it was definitely an exciting time I'm sure for all of the staff to get ready to open this fantastic museum permanent exhibit the uh, Rio Grande legacy to the public that's you know those were my first memories those first few months was just we need to do this and we need to do it right now and having this schedule of all of these objects that needed to be found and processed and uh, funneled to the mount maker and then actually help install them in the final push to open the exhibit and it was it was a close deadline because I even have a picture of me that I treasure that somebody snapped the evening that we had an opening 
for our trustees and our donors. There's a picture of me wearing my evening gown for that event, but pushing a cart of tools to the mount maker who was putting in the last few objects, like minutes before people walked up the stairs to the museum. And we got it done and it was fabulous and everyone was so moved. But that's an experience I will never forget. Wow, it sounds like you have a positive attitude because listening to this, I am stressed. <laughs> and it, yes, <laughs> it was stressful. <laughs> and I guess what helped me is I was a newbie on the block. But anyway, I got to do my part and I was very happy that I did. And it was just a fascinating, exciting time and very rewarding. I'm sure even more so, of course, to the employees at the museum and this exhibit design firm who had been working for years to bring this to fruition. And I just had a small part towards the end, but it was so exciting. Who was on staff when you were the first Well, a lot of the people that are still on staff. Um, For instance, uh, Lynn Beeching, who's been our development officer and helped raise the phenomenal amount of money that was needed to open that part of the museum. And Tom Fort, who was the curator of exhibits for many years. And Sandra was there as part of the museum. A couple of people who were kind of legendary in the Valley were there. One of them was Jim McCone, who was the PR person. And Jim had had a career with UT uh, Pan American, or probably even before that, maybe Pan American University, for years as their sports writer. And then as kind of his second chapter, he came on board as the PR person at the museum and so that was wonderful because everybody in the valley knew Jim and all of the media contacts knew him. The other person that played a big part in my life who was at the museum at that time was David Mikey who was the archivist. He was my supervisor at that time and became a close friend and I got to know his family as well and David, I think, is still legendary in the Valley in some ways. I was, I'm still occasionally meeting people. Well, I'm not out and about now during COVID, but when I was, I would meet people when I said I worked at the museum. Oh, I came to do genealogy there, or I came to do research there, and I met David Mikey, or David Mikey helped me so much. He got me the information I needed to complete my dissertation or my thesis or to research my family. David, like Sandra, treated everybody the same, open heart, open mind, wonderful storyteller, just a raconteur, and knew so much history of the Rio Grande Valley. Even though he was not a native here, he had just absorbed it like a sponge. He's just one of these people that left tremendous legacy, and he retired from the museum And unfortunately, he had all of these plans for research that he wanted to do, and then he passed away a few years later. I still miss him. I will always think of David Mikey when I think of the museum because he had such an impact on so many people who came to do research in the archives. He's just made a mark on me and on so many people as well. And he was definitely, you know, part of the team that was helping those exhibits get open because if you go through the exhibits, so many of the photographs that are on display 
are reproduced from images in the museum's archive. And so, of course, he had a huge role in finding those images and getting them prepared and helping them to be part of the exhibits. And he had some wonderful help as well that I want to mention, if you'll allow me, because he had an assistant named Delfina Lopez, whom I never met. She had left the museum before I got there. But she almost single-handedly wrote tags for and cataloged, I would say, like two-thirds of the museum's object collection and probably a good bit of the archives as well. Just a monumental task that she just chipped away at. And I know she must have had immense patience to do that. So Delfina Lopez was a big part of that department. And a gentleman named Gary White, who was a retired volunteer that worked in archives for years, also beloved around the valley, did so many good things uh, for the valley. And he had a huge role in processing and identifying a lot of the photographs in the archives collection and really in some ways was David's right-hand man in the volunteer aspect of it. I had no idea about Delfina Lopez and Gary White. That's that's interesting. Such important people in the collections and archives department. They really had a a huge role. You know, I'm very thankful that they were there. Like I said, I didn't get to meet Delfina, but I did meet Gary White, and you could not find a a nicer person. He also, I believe, helped David Mikey compile a timeline of Valley history, and the museum has that timeline. I don't think there's been anything like it done since. It's not a book about the valley, but it's every key date that they could find. What a massive work that was. And David Mikew and I think Gary White helped with put that together. I feel like I need to look at that. I had no idea we had that there. And (laughs) And I'm sure there's pictures of both of those people in the museum archives because they were there for many years. Delfina was an employee and Gary White was a volunteer. Awesome. Definitely we'll have to look into that. And I definitely will have to agree on David Mikey being such a you know big part of the museum. The current CEO, Francisco Guajardo, actually also did some research at the museum when he was doing his, oh, I want to, I know he did research there. Can't remember if it was like for thesis or doctoral program right. and stuff. But, you know, he talks about David Mikey also. mentioned that you know you started at the museum stressful but exciting yeah. <laughs> and, and fun so I'm assuming afterward the honeymoon was over Did... well then I had to get down to some nitty-gritty things part of the reason I was hired was to supplement David's hard work to better organize the collection to, of course, continue processing collection items and to actively seek collection items, but also to do some of the the behind-the-scenes housekeeping that a lot of people don't realize occurs in museums, like the record-keeping and keeping track of loans and doing inventories for accountability. What I've realized is it does not matter 
whether you're the Smithsonian or you're a two-person museum, all museums, I would say, are understaffed and underfunded for the tasks that's set before them. Everybody that works in the collection department always feels like they're probably behind, like there's so much we need to do with the new material coming in and going back and keeping track of loans or for instance, about the time I came on, you know, the big push to start getting our data entered into a database rather than just having paper records. All of those things are kind of the behind the scenes things that museum people work on steadily all the time that aren't as glamorous, but they're interesting because you're always learning. And that's a, that's a wonderful thing about museum careers is that you never stop learning. And to add, the other thing about working at the museum is we have a lot of programs, a lot of events, and depending on which program it is, you're not necessarily going to be archival things. So for example, we have Pioneer Ranch and Crafts Day, we have Summer Nights at the Museum, and we have Dia de los Muertos and a Christmas program. Could you kind of list or describe the job duties that that you did for <laughs> that or for those events right well everybody participated and just to take one event pioneer and ranching crafts day for years and years i was the butter churner <laughs> which sounds ridiculous but it was so much fun you know because we had pioneer era crafts we had outside demonstrators came in but we also put on demonstrations in-house so people who worked or volunteered at the museum would demonstrate things. One of the museum's longtime friends and volunteers, Elizabeth Perdomo, taught me how to churn butter. So I got to churn butter every year at Pioneer and Ranch and Crafts Day, and there could not have been a more fun job that day because we not only churned the butter, we got the kids to help us churn the butter, and then we served the butter that we made. And so there was always a big crowd around that table, and that was so much fun. Then, you know, with other events, maybe I might be help, uh, help doing crafts in the crafts area, which I love, or develop some of the crafts. Or for summer nights was one of my favorite events where we did hands-on activities with kids. And I enjoyed getting to develop a lot of those activities. And some of them were easy and some were not. We built some little miniature lania fences for kids to make which are the stacked log fence that you see on the property in the exhibit and i had a, a student help me do that and that was fun you know okay go out and gather sticks and i need them this long to be little miniature lania sticks or logs and others would be more involved like if anybody has gone to summer nights in past years we had an activity where kids learned about the irrigation system of the valley with this fun but elaborate contraption that had like a panoramic view of towns and farms that would get irrigation water and kids got to so-called pump water with a little pump and we had little blue styrofoam balls and they would learn that pressure would pump the water up through the pump house and then gravity would carry it down and I and our one of our people that worked in the store who is a husband of Evelyn Herbold, who is our receptionist, tinkered and tinkered with that. There had never been one made. Uh, I just came up with ideas like, can we make it? Yeah, let's try to get some of this and some of that. And, you know, we would experiment with it. And we ended up getting a kayak pump to be what helped pump 
the so-called water. It was fun, too, that the museum had enough confidence to let us try things. Maybe in some jobs, you're not allowed to try unless you can guarantee success. That turned out to be super successful, but we didn't know that when we were starting it. Let's just try that. And oh, what a fun activity that was. And we used it many, many years. We even took it out to a school once that was learning about agriculture. It was a lot of fun coming up with some of the different hands-on activities because I'm a kid at heart and I love doing those kind of things when I was a kid. Another event that I just loved and I got to collaborate on with some, some more special people was the museum was invited to come up with some kind of historical presentation by the East Foundation, which is a wonderful organization that promotes stewardship of wildlife on private property like ranches. And they had an event called Behind the Gate, where every idea school student, every fifth grader, I think it was, in the Valley would visit this event to learn about ranching. I and the museum's educator at the time, Melody Quate, came up with an interactive skit about the history of that particular ranch. Then Renee Ballesteros and I, I'll have to say you also, Pamela, you kind of took over my role later on, but for the first couple of years, it was Renee and I wore Spanish colonial costumes out on a ranch in the heat. We really felt what that would be like and did this interactive skit about the history of ranching, about the Native Americans and the Spanish colonists. And it was a huge hit, I'll have to say that, and we were told that many times by teachers and kids and the East Foundation. And what a great learning that experience that was for me too, to find out, get a taste of what that would have been like to be living out on a ranch in Spanish colonial times. That was wonderful, you know, was that ever in my job description? Nope. But our director at the time, Shan Rankin, said, oh, you know, we have this invitation. Is there something that you think you could come up with that fits that? I'm like, yes, you bet. Okay, let me get with Melody and think about it. And again, what a fantastic opportunity for me to help come up with this program that was so successful and so much fun and I think really put the museum in the spotlight, introduced the museum to a lot of kids and teachers that maybe didn't know much about it. And working with our uh, the museum's gardener, Manuel Savino, Judy McClellan worked with him. And after she retired, then Shan said, could you kind of work with Manuel to select native plants? And that was so much fun. I had some background to training with the Master Naturalist program. And I was just interested in that as well getting to select native plants that had a historic relation to our area, either because they were utilized by people for food or grazing or dyes or various things. That brought me in contact with more interesting people like Mike Keep, who's a native plant grower in Harlingen and supplied many, many of the plants for the museum, as well as others, Robert Candy and Benito Trevino, how fascinating to be able to meet some of these people and work with them to help create not only a beautiful environment for the museum, but one that has a deeper significance because of the history of the plants. And of course, Manuel Savino had the green thumb 
and knew a lot about plants from Mexico as well. So I so enjoyed getting to work with him and some of these other people that could help us bring native plants to the museum grounds. Manuel definitely has a green thumb. And I think that yes. was a, there, isn't there a Sabino tree on the museum there grounds? Is, yes. In fact, I have a picture of Manuel standing in front of the Sabino, which is another name for the Montezuma cypress. And we have several of those out in front of the museum, the beautiful trees that turn rusty red in the fall. And one of their other names is Sabino. So I have a picture of Manuel Sabino in front of his Sabino. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I, I had no idea that there was also another name for the, the cypress yeah. tree. Wow, interesting. So could you tell us of a particular donation that just sticks out that you, I guess that kind of like gave you that excitement that you'll just never forget? I knew you would ask me this. I was racking my brain to try to think of something. And there's been so many, it's hard to, you know, separate out they're just kind of a blur in my mind but I got to be involved when the museum acquired the plan of San Diego collection which was a plan of documents pertaining to a planned uprising in the early 1900s that was actually something that the museum purchased and Shan Rankin our director at the time was able to get grant or foundation money to help us purchase it because typically the museum doesn't purchase artifacts or very rarely we rely on donations. But that collection has been utilized by so many different scholars and students. So it's an exciting collection and it was an exciting process to acquire it also because it was kind of cloak and dagger, at least the cloak part, nothing dangerous about it. but because it was quite a process to acquire it, to have it evaluated by legal teams, by appraisers prior to the final acquisition. Really, there were only three people at the museum that knew that this was in process at the time. And I was one in our director and I think and Barbara Stokes. And we knew that this was going to be one of the most fantastic additions to the collection ever. Working on that somewhat lengthy process to acquire that was very exciting, very secretive at the time, very exciting. And it, it also spoke to something about museums that probably a lot of people don't realize, and that is how much collaboration there is between museums and trust between museums. Because what happened was the person who wanted to sell this collection, who was a descendant of one of the people was planning the plan of San Diego. He actually offered it to another museum in Texas. I don't know why he went to this other museum first. Maybe it was just happenstance or he landed on their website first. But that museum and that part of Texas really did not have a direct connection to the plan of San Diego the way that South Texas did. Maybe if this were the corporate world, and we were corporations, maybe one corporation would have bought it and sold it and made a, a killing for it, even though it had nothing to do with them. But what happened was that museum recognized, oh, this is a very significant collection and it needs to be held by a museum in that region that's telling part of that story. And so that museum actually contacted well, they directed the person who held the collection to our museum. 
that I think it really represents something about the museum field. And that is how collaborative museums are, how much they assist each other in different aspects, professional aspects. And in that way, I think I was so lucky to be in the field because you really felt like people in other museums were your collaborators in the good sense, your colleagues, and that they had your back and you were going to look out for each other, help each other in many ways. That's probably not true of every profession. I'm sure it is of many, and the museum is museum field is one of them. And I think that that really came out in that example, you know, that we were able to acquire a collection that has so much historical significance and has brought attention to our museum or the Museum of South Texas History. And yet we wouldn't have acquired it if some other museum hadn't said, oh, look, you know, it really belongs in South Texas and directed the person to us, to the museum. And so that was pretty phenomenal on so many different levels. And I think the other or another great example of that collaboration is I don't remember when exactly, maybe 2016, 2017, when the the Bullock Museum had some of our collection items on display for the, can't, can't remember the exact name of the exhibit, but it was about the 1910s. There was like a pair of shoes, I believe, that we had loaned them and a dress and some other mm-hmm. stuff. And so. some of the images uh, that they reproduced from the Plan of San Diego collection as well. And the code wheel, which was just such an incredible object. It's like, is this really real? And it really was to send encoded telegrams. And that collection included some telegrams that were in a code to be sent so that not everyone would understand what the telegram said. And the collection included the code code wheel. And that that has not only been loaned out to other institutions, but we also developed a game on it for kids to learn about that kind of coding and to learn a little bit about the history of the plan of San Diego. And the museum has been a partner with the Bullock for several different exhibits. And the Bob Bullock Texas State History Museum is, is the flagship, I guess, museum in some ways of the state but they don't have their own collection. They exclusively borrow from museums and collectors around the state. They have borrowed from the Museum of South Texas History for numerous exhibits, for the one that you mentioned, Pamela, for an exhibit about the citrus industry in Texas. Who better to look to than the Museum of South Texas History? You know, we had citrus-related items on display at the Bullock, things like a, a citrus juicer or citrus sizers so that the workers in the field can determine the size of the citrus that they need to pick based on the order that they've received or a citrus corsage citrus shaped corsage you know that was worn at the citrus festival here and so that was fun that the museum of south texas history was able to grant those things a wider exposure by loaning them to the bullock museum that has visitors, you know, from all over, all over the world, basically, who come to Austin and visit the flagship museum there. And that was fun because I got to help with those kinds of loans or finding those objects. Tom Wancho is the curator 
who's charged with finding those objects around the state. And so he would call the museum, okay, now what do you have about this? And sometimes we had things, sometimes we didn't, but it was fun when we did. Another great aspect about the museum is not only those, you know, partnerships with other organizations, but also with the University of Texas, uh, Rio Grande Valley, obviously, you know, has been yes. changed. The name has been changed. Yes. But the museum studies students, the volunteers who come and yes. help out at the museum, had that sort of a partnership was it already established when you got there? It was already established when it when I got there, but over the years we tweaked it a little bit to give a stronger experience to the students so that they would have more knowledge of museum work when they left the museum. And that was fun to work um, with different people at the university uh, with that, they play students all around. So we were not the only institution that received uh, students, but we were glad of the ones we did. And they would work. I know you have had students work with you to learn about the public relations aspect. Our programming officer has had students help with programs. The archives has had students and the collection area artifact collection has had students. And one of those students, in fact, now is an employee at the museum, Luna Galvan. It's rare for museums to expand their staff because, again, we're always wanting more funds to do all these programs. We don't always have the funding to add new positions. So it was very exciting to, when one of the archive study students eventually was hired by the museum, and that was Luna. So she's a great addition. Another student that just leaps to my mind was a young lady named Jenneray Alanis, who actually did many things. She was a tour guide at the museum also. And then she worked, I believe, in archives as a museum studies student. And she worked in my department as a museum studies student and then continued on as a volunteer. And it really confirmed for her that this was a field she wanted to pursue. And so after she graduated from UTRGV, she went on to get her master's in museum studies at George Washington University. And now she works at the Smithsonian Museum, which I'm like a proud abuela of Jenneray almost because I saw her, you know, come up in the field and now she's working at the Smithsonian. And how exciting is that to think that maybe the Museum of South Texas History has had a part in launching people into their various careers. And we've partnered with the CHAPS program, uh, the Community Historical Archaeology Program. And that's been a lot of fun. For a number of years, I gave the kickoff tour for the students in that CHAPS program and gave them a special tour through the exhibits where they, we really talked about the human land relationship in South Texas and kind of set the stage for their research that they would go on to do about different properties in the Rio Grande Valley. And so that was uh, fun for me to be part of that collaboration with UTRGV and the CHAPS program. And I believe they also 
do a lot of research in the archives. They do, yes, because they every year they investigate a different a piece of property or a, a family farm or ranch in the valley besides actually exploring that property from a physical standpoint, archaeological, botanical standpoint. They interview the families and they conduct research in archives to find documents and photographs about the property. I believe one of our docents, she was in the, I guess, one of the classes that mm-hmm. that does that. And she was just so excited that she was a public or she is a published uh, author. Yeah. It's just fascinating how the, you know, you think the museum is like, oh, this boring place that has like old objects. But there's just so many facets to it that it's just really hard to say, like, how could you say it's boring? You know, we have all these programs, these partnerships, and we're connected to, you know, historical research and books and famous people coming. I believe, uh, speaking of famous CBS, they were working on the, I can't remember his, you know, the one who murdered Irene Garza. Yeah, I, I believe they did some research in the archives as well. Yes, they did. I think some images in the archives ended up in their final footage in their story about Irene. And the archives has researchers from all over the world. Sometimes it's very personal research. They're wanting to look at their family information. Can I, for instance, can I find documentation about my parents that they were here in the United States at a certain time? Or, you know, research on a huge variety of topics. It's a a huge service that the museum provides, not only by making that material available, but by acquiring it and saving it to begin with and preserving, you know, this kind of material that might be lost otherwise and making it available for the future. When I started working there, I didn't really know too much about the museum. But then when I started talking to you and Phyllis Kinnison at the time, who's the archivist, and it made me start thinking about, maybe I should be donating some items because you just you just never know and I have donated several items uh, especially my grandfather who was a migrant worker and photographs and things like that so museum is a very important place for that type of research and to preserve And and your donations were important because they are helping the museum build a collection about a story that's not always fully told and that is more one of the stories about migrant workers and i would say nowadays of course it's different but when you look back decades ago their stories were not often part of the history of the valley and the things that they used wouldn't be considered valuable like a hand tool or vegetable knife or a record or a book that was taken on the journeys as the people traveled following the harvest of the crops. Those would have been things that would be thrown away or used up. And so sometimes those kind of things are harder to acquire, but they're they're extremely valuable in helping the museum tell a more complete story. And the museum can only tell as good a stories as the collections and the archival material that it holds or can display. It's really hard in the nature of the museum field. If you don't have that material, either in your collection or on loan, it's difficult to tell that story. Then it's 
then it just becomes a story. It doesn't become a museum exhibit or a display, which is so immersive. And I think there will always be a role for museums and objects because, of course, you know, being interested in history, I love to read history books and I like to hear oral histories. But when I see objects that were part of that history or hear sounds relevant to like the sound of a packing shed and the machinery going, or I see the equipment that would be used in a packing shed, then that really brings it to life for me. And I understand a little bit more, oh, what would that be like to stand at this machinery every day and hear these noises and be sorting the fruit? And I think there will always be a role for museums because as long as we're human beings, we still are embodied. We still use objects in our daily life, create objects to express the human condition. And those objects are really powerful because of the stories behind them. And it doesn't matter how humble the object may look, like a knife to cut broccoli heads, but the story behind it can be extremely powerful. Do you think that's why the museum has been around for 50 years? I think one reason definitely is because there are some powerful stories to be told and that still need to be told also. And the public is the partner with the museum. It's not just that the museum serves the public, although we certainly do that and it's an educational institution. The public works is an important part of the museum too by telling us their story, bringing us their objects that can tell those stories. So the public really is a partner in helping the museum fulfill its goals of always increasing the breadth and depth of the stories that it can tell about this region. Luckily, the museum has had fantastic community support, I think, since the get-go, you know, long before I got there. I've always heard that the museum has had so many people support it financially or with in-kind services or with donations to the collection. That speaks a lot about this region, I think, that they know the importance of their stories and they know the importance of the museum to this region and also to tell other people about this region. And I'm going to coach Shan Rankin, our former director, one of her stories, but I always remember her saying that she was talking to a winter Texan one time after they had gone through the exhibit, He's, and he told her something like, my, you know, my eyes have really been opened. I would come down here, and I didn't understand why people were speaking Spanish. And he said, now I understand why. I, I, I get it, uh, because that story is told. You can't tell the story of this region without understanding the influence of the Spanish colonial history about people from Spain, about people from Mexico, and now from other regions as well, Guatemala, Nicaragua, different places. But he didn't know that before he came to the museum. He didn't understand that. It sounded to almost if maybe he was very, not only perplexed, but kind of dismayed. Why are people speaking Spanish here? But because he came to the museum he now understood that and understood in greater complexity 
you know, the story of this part of the world, the unique history to it. And wow, I don't think there's any greater tribute you can pay a museum than to feel like that somebody through your exhibits has learned something valuable or has heard their story told. Again, I'm, I'm getting this from Shan Rankin, but when we opened the second part of the permanent exhibits, the River Crossroads, which tells the 20th century history of the area, you know, the opening day for that was just thrilling, of course. And Shan, the director at the time, stood outside the exit to the the exhibit because you went in one direction and went out the other. And these were even in pre-COVID times, but to, because it was chronological, you would start at the beginning of the 20th century and you would go out to the end. So on the opening day, Shan was kind of outside at the end of the exhibit. And she said that one of the first people that came out was crying. And, you know, Shan was distressed thinking, oh, you know, what what's happened and the person told her, no, I'm just so moved because you just told the story of my family in that exhibit. And I'm getting choked up just talking about it. But, you know, for somebody to see their story being told and communicated with the greater public is just one of the most fantastic things I think a museum can do. And the museum has done that very successfully and will continue to do that, especially as the public continues to support the museum and collaborates with the museum to tell those stories in the exhibits and in other ways also through programming and things like that. Lisa, you know, mentioned that an ordinary object might be a little boring for you, but it might be significant in telling of the story of our region. And you don't need to be a famous person to have, you know, a valuable object. Not at all. And and the museum is definitely telling a unique story. And sometimes what was hard for me working in collections is someone might have a fantastic object but it told the story of Alaska or West Virginia, and it, and it had no connection to South Texas. In that case, you know, we would always try to help that person find a home for it. Numerous times, we would put them in contact with a museum in West Virginia or someplace that maybe it better belonged in that region to tell their story. Because we're not a universal museum, there's definitely universal themes about love and struggle and achievement and stewardship but they're played out in south texas and northeastern mexico and that's the focus of this museum and that's what makes it strong it's not a hodgepodge of things from all over the world that don't have a connection but it's things that tell the stories associated with this very particular and unique region uh, in the world is there anything else you'd like to add? Maybe that didn't ask or you thought about and you're like, oh, I have to mention this. It's not things so much as people. And over the course of the years, I found out that's the museum deals with things, but we serve people. We work with people. The museum is for people. Meeting 
different people coming to events, coming to donate things, and then our trustees and our volunteers also. I think that one thing that speaks well of the museum is when people commit a good part of their life to it. And we've had employees that have done that, that have worked there for decades. And we also had volunteers that did that. And two of my favorite people at the museum were volunteers who worked there for years and years. There was a gentleman named Hal Force who worked in the store. And he was a great salesman of historical books that we sold in the store because he'd read all of them. And he was originally from Illinois. And so it did not matter where a winter Texan visitor was from. He knew something about their town. Oh, I heard you're opening a new plant there. Or I heard there's a detour around your town with a new highway or something. And he was just a wonderful person and a great be someone in the store to sell those books and talk to people. And another person was a lady named Marion Vegan, who volunteered for decades in the store. I don't even remember how long. When I met her, she was in her late 80s, and she continued to volunteer until her 90s. And that says a lot, obviously, about those individuals, but also about the museum, that someone thinks it's worthwhile enough to come every week. I'm going to work in the archives. I'm going to volunteer in the archives. I'm going to volunteer this store. I'm going to volunteer as a docent. I think that says a lot about the value of the museum and the integrity of the institution at the Museum of South Texas History. And that's a word I would use a lot is museum's not perfect. No institution is. Sometimes some of our shortfalls are we're beyond the capacity of the museum. It's not like we wanted, didn't want to do this or that, but we maybe didn't have the resources to do it. But it was definitely a place of integrity. And I think people trust the museum. People volunteered there for years and years. Or someone coming in volunteered to translate documents from English to Spanish. And that was a project we had a gentleman work on for years. And he was just very committed to that. And I think that says a lot not only, of course, about the people, but about the institution, that people see the value in committing to it, their time or their money or their resources. Thank you, Lisa, for this wonderful conversation. I learned a lot more about the museum that I didn't know about, so that is awesome, and it sounds like you had such a wonderful time at the museum. I did. I, I just look back at my time there and have so many wonderful memories. Very happy that I was associated with it. So thank you, Pamela, and associated with you also. I'm (laughs) glad I got to work with you as well. That was a joy, lots of fun projects we got to work on together. Yes, definitely. For those of you listening, thank you. Thank you, Pamela. This episode was produced by Most History Communications. Song is Carpe Diem by Kevin McLeod. License under Creative Commons. Follow us on Anchor to hear more stories from the Rio Grande and send us your questions through the Anchor app. You can also subscribe to this podcast through the Apple Podcasts app or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you for listening to Most History, Stories from the Rio Grande.